Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So last week, we finished up John chapter 1, and uh, we saw that Jesus was starting to call people to follow him as his disciples. And then these disciples instinctively, they went and they told other people that they had met the Messiah, which is just beautiful, right? They, they had this first touch with Jesus and it just changed them so much internally in the depths of their heart that they said, man, I got to tell somebody else, right? These disciples, they got this initial taste and they saw that Jesus was good. And then we ended last week by spending time praying just on our own, asking for Jesus to give us more of what he wants for us. We saw that verse, taste and see that the Lord is good, and all of us have had that taste. And now we cry out for this pure spiritual nourishment so that Jesus will continue to grow in us. We don't want to just say, I'm saved, everything's good, but we want the most of what Jesus has for this relationship that we're meant to have with him. And today we're beginning chapter 2, and and here we're going to read about Jesus' first miracle. Super exciting, right? I love this stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the the whole passage, which is John 2, verse 1 to 12, and then we'll start to kind of break it down together. So let's, let's read this. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. For, the, for those of us who've grown up in church, I mean, I remember this one from when I was just a little guy. I mean, this is a, a story that many people have heard before. But there were so many new things that stood out to me this week for some reason. I'm just so excited to share these things with you. So let's, let's just kind of go back to the beginning here and let's, let's figure out what exactly is going on and some of the significance, of course, of this story and the events that go on in it. So not far away from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up and where he had spent a lot of his time, is a town called Cana. And there's a wedding taking place there. Jesus and his disciples, they receive an invitation, so they go to celebrate with this couple who are getting married. Jesus' mother is at this celebration too, so perhaps these are family friends, or maybe they're even relatives of some sort. But nonetheless, Jesus and his disciples and his mother are all present. At one point during the celebration, the wine that the guests are enjoying runs out. 
Now, wine was an important part of the culture of Jesus' day. It was, very, uh, it was a very common drink because of its health benefits, actually. Finding clean water that was uncontaminated wasn't always easy. And the fermenting, so the fermenting process that wine goes through kills harmful bacteria, making it one of the safest things for us to drink. Something else to note about wine in those days is that it was also diluted significantly. Often at least two parts water to one part wine. And I actually read somewhere this week, and this kind of sounds gross, but it was 20 parts water to one part wine. So, I mean, basically church juice, if you're really honest with yourself, right? In some cases, many more parts water, right? Anyway, so wine, wine also carried significant symbolism from that day. It was considered a sign of joy to have wine, and the Bible supports this idea in a number of places that wine was a symbol of joy. One of those places, or one of those examples, is Psalm 4, verse 15, which talks about wine that gladdens human hearts. So if a household had wine, there was joy. And if they were without wine or if it ran out, it was a disappointing or a sad thing. Now, just because wine was so commonly consumed in those days, I don't want any of us to go to a weird place and think, man, these were just wild party animals, all these Jewish people, and they were just drinking to get drunk. That's not at all the case, right? First of all, it's diluted so much, I don't know how much you would have to consume in order to get that, to that place, but it's just also not true. That wasn't their motive. The people at this wedding celebration were all likely Jewish, and they desired to obey the law that had been given to them, which tells them to not get drunk. It says this in many places, in many ways in Scripture. Again, one example is Proverbs 20, verse 1. It says, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. So to be led astray by those drinks would mean that those drinks, beer or wine, would have to alter your way of thinking and living. So being intoxicated was not the desire of anyone at this party. So the people gathered together at this wedding celebration were enjoying wine responsibly, but nonetheless, it runs out. A symbol of joy or gladness, this wine at the wedding celebration was gone. Not only would this have put a damper on the otherwise good mood of everyone, but this would have also been a huge embarrassment to the hosts of this wedding celebration. Hospitality and generosity in Israel and the near Middle East are legendary. Hosts of any event would have had specific social expectations to live up to because that's how people did things in that culture. If those expectations were unmet, it would be a severe humiliation for them. So knowing all of these things, knowing all the significance of running out of wine, that's why Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to Jesus and tells him, there's no more wine. You know, it's funny. Mothers kind of have a way of saying things to us without having to truly say them, don't they? <laughs> Growing up, if my mom asked me, hey, uh, Jeff, do you know anything about the mud in the entrance? Now, she wouldn't have had to say it, but I knew exactly what she meant. She meant like, Jeff, I see that there's mud all over your shoes. You've tracked it into the entrance. Would you please go and do something about it, right? She didn't say that, but I knew exactly what she meant. So maybe, maybe in Mary saying this thing to Jesus, she's not making a request of him officially, but she actually really is because that's what she intends. I fully believe that Jesus would have understood his mother's tone when she told him, hey, they have no more wine. 
And he would have understood this statement to be a request for him to do something to save these people from embarrassment. Mary made this request knowing how improbable it would be to find any other solution apart from Jesus. There's no corner store to run to in those days. Advanced planning and preparation were the only ways to ensure that there would be enough food and drink at any certain celebration where you're feeding a good-sized crowd. So Mary knew that Jesus, once again, he was their only hope. Jesus' response shows that he understands that his mother is making a request rather than a statement. He says, dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. So Jesus isn't being rude to his mother, by the way. We see him say, dear woman, which and some other translations just say woman. Sometimes we're like, whoa, Jesus, I don't know if you should be talking to your mother like that. Actually, the word woman in those times was what we would refer to as like calling someone ma'am or lady. It's a, it's a polite way to speak to someone. And Jesus isn't saying here that he doesn't care about these people and their awkward social situation that they have been placed in, that they're out of line at their party. But in saying that my time has not yet come, he's indicating that he's fully submitted to God the Father. You see, it was God the Father who had sent Jesus to earth. And Jesus was fully submitted to his plans and timelines for when he should reveal himself supernaturally or reveal his glory to the public. Obviously, despite Jesus' answer saying, hey, my time has not yet come, Mary senses something in Jesus like he's willing to do something that was helpful for the hosts of this wedding celebration because she turns to the servants and puts Jesus on the spot saying, do whatever he tells you. So Mary knew who her son was, right? Like we don't have to say, man, if Mary, if you only knew, right? Mary knew exactly who Jesus was. The angel Gabriel had come to her before she was even pregnant with Jesus and told her all about who he would be. So she knew this. She knew who he was. She knew that Jesus was capable of anything and could certainly be a difference maker in this situation. And then we see Jesus' heart. This is like, this is my favorite part of the story, right? I see, we see Jesus' heart of love for people. He actually is genuinely concerned about the reputation of this family. He doesn't want their celebration to be spoiled, so he gets to work. He does something to change the circumstances that these people have found themselves in. And his love for people causes him to work in their best interest. Here's where things get kind of interesting for me. So verse 6, I'm going to read this again. It says, Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Okay, so the fact that these water jars were made of stone is actually somewhat significant, okay? In the first century, wine was stored in a variety of different vessels or containers, clay pots, wooden barrels, and if you were on the go, you could take wine into a wineskin, which is like a skin made from animal flesh or animal skin, and you, you could use it to store liquids in. These six stone water jars held enough water collectively to fill the small pool, and the purpose for that water was for Jewish ceremonial washing. So these stone jars are not intended 
for wine at all. Yet, Jesus uses them for his first miracle. Something that most people saw as unsuitable, Jesus uses to do something amazing. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But while we're at this point in the story, I just wanted to draw some attention to these things being stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Nonetheless, Jesus does what he does. He asks the servants, they fill them with water, and then he says, okay, dip some out, fill some other containers, bring them over to the master of ceremony, right? So these servants, who I'm sure were a little confused or at at least concerned at this point, they do what Jesus tells them to do. They fill these things up, and then they take some to the master of ceremonies. The master of ceremonies, or the master of the banquet, was, as some translations say, or some translations call him the master of the banquet, this person was in charge of the entertainment and the distribution of wine at any celebration that he was put in charge of. This person was probably well aware that they had run out of wine and was probably sweating bullets because, hey, it was their job to make sure everyone got what they needed. So perhaps this master of ceremonies was thinking to himself when the servants were coming with a pitcher of something, he may have said, whew, at least they found something to serve. This is better than no wine at all. Crisis averted. Verse 9 says, When the master of ceremonies tasted the water... That was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew. He called the bridegroom over and he says to the bridegroom, a host serves the best wine first. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. It's like he's correcting him. It's like, hey, normally this is how it happens. But then with joy and amazement, he says, but you have kept the best until now. So the master of ceremonies, he tastes this miracle wine, right? That just moments ago was water in a stone jar. And he didn't have any idea where it came from. Imagine being oblivious, yet you get to receive the amazing blessing that Jesus has given. But to his amazement, this wine that he was expecting to be the cheap stuff actually turns out to be the best wine of the night. And he calls the bridegroom over to congratulate him. And the bridegroom would have understood as well that they were low on wine. And I don't know if Mary would have told him, hey, don't worry, I got my son on it. It's going to be okay. But nonetheless, I'm sure the bridegroom is, is probably surprised to hear that the master of ceremonies has said, wow, you saved the best stuff for last. Verse 11 concludes this section. It says, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his, glories, his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus turning water into wine here at this wedding celebration in Cana is actually the first of seven signs that John reveals in the gospel, which clearly reveal the glory or the majesty of Christ. The fact that Jesus is God in flesh and he carries complete authority and sovereignty over the entire universe and natural laws. I love the line at the end of verse 11 that says, His disciples believed in him. Yeah, no kidding, right? Like, what an understatement that is. What an amazing day it must have been for these rookie disciples who just the previous day or two had started to find time with Jesus. And now they're being, they're beginning to understand, whoa, like this is the guy that we're following. He called us to follow him. And now he just did this amazing miracle. This is way more than we ever thought we were getting ourselves into. So let's talk about five interesting pieces from this story 
that I, I feel holds some, some significance for us today. We, we've understood the story in the cultural context and things like that, but what does this mean for us today, right? Because we can look at a story from the Old Testament or the New Testament. It happened a long time ago. It's like, hey, that's cool. Yeah, Jesus is great. Miracle worker. What does this mean for us now? That's the question that we want to ask here. So five interesting pieces of this story have significance for you and me today. And the first one is this. Not only does this miracle spur people on to faith in Jesus, like it says, the disciples saw this and they believed, right? But in the Old Testament, the salvation that God offers is actually described like a great party or a banquet. This is kind of interesting. So that's where they're at. They're at a party or a banquet. And that's what the salvation that Jesus is going to bring is described as in the Old Testament. One of those places that uses that analogy and, and kind of talks about this is Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 8. So it says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. So when it calls this event a banquet, it's not literally talking about food and drink necessarily because food and drink aren't necessary for Jesus to accomplish all these things, wiping away insults and mockery and, and, and removing the shadow of death and all these kinds of things. But nonetheless, the comparison is really interesting, right? If, if the Old Testament says that Jesus is going to be like a banquet and he's going to accomplish all these things, it'll be like a celebration. And here we are at a celebration and Jesus, for the very first time in his ministry, reveals his glory. He does something supernatural. It's like, oh, maybe there's something to this, right? So by turning water into wine, it's like Jesus is making a statement, He's, it's like he's saying, I am the fulfillment of these promises that you see in Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament. God's great banquet, his salvation is available to all people through me, through Jesus and what I, what he can do. And we know that through his actions and his message, this is the exact statement that Jesus makes over and over and over again during his life and his ministry on earth. Everything that he does, just like John has told us so far, is about revealing the Father to us. This is one of the most amazing and, and first ways that Jesus reveals the Father to us, but he continues to do that, making the statement over and over again, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the fulfillment of the promises of God. The second significant thing that I wanted to, to talk about is, is that the wine that Jesus provided at the end was the best wine of the whole celebration. To me, it seems that Jesus was doing something so kind and loving for the hosts of this wedding celebration. He wasn't just doing the bare minimum, what was socially acceptable, by providing wine that was fine, passable, right? But he actually created the best wine of the night. And this made me think about our own journey with Jesus. Think about this with me for a minute, okay? So we all begin life with Jesus when we put our trust in him to be saved from our sins. That's kind of our entry point into relationship with Jesus. And then from that point, we start to take baby steps and, and we try to move forward in our faith. We try to grow and experience him more and, and understand more things, right? Like that's all good. As we do that, Jesus steps or Jesus keeps 
um, moving us forward. He keeps meeting us along the way. He, he meets us at different milestones in our life. Each revelation, each interaction, every moment of greater maturing and understanding and spiritual growth becomes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. So life with Jesus isn't just like a flatline thing. It's like we're ascending the mountain of the Lord. We're going higher and higher, closer and closer to everything that Jesus wants for us. But at the end, when our salvation is complete with Jesus and we are taken into heaven to be with him forever, isn't that the best? Isn't that the best thing that could ever happen to us? What do you guys think? Yeah, like so... Just like Jesus at this wedding celebration saved the best for last, it actually mirrors our experience with him as we walk with him, as we are like his disciples and he reveals more of himself to us. We get to experience Jesus better and better and better, greater and greater and greater. But it's not like, oh, when am I going to be let down? When am I going to reach the pinnacle? And then it's going to be like boring after that. No, Jesus is saving the best for last eternal life glorious life with him in heaven where we have this purpose and this authority that we have never experienced before where our lives make sense where there is no more weeping there's no more sorrow there's no more pain no more suffering it is going to literally be the best and jesus saves that for those who will endure to the end i I love that part so i think we have joy right now but it's going to even get, it's going to get more joyful. So I would just use that as an encouragement to continue to persist and persevere and, in, and endure with Jesus. Continue to walk with him because it's going to get even better. I mean, how many of you would say that in your life so far with Jesus, you've experienced some joy on some level? Yeah. Friends, the best is yet to come. Third thing I wanted to talk about for as far as significant pieces go is let's go back to these stone water jars for a moment. I, I talked about them for a minute. I said that there would be some more. So, so here it is. When I read about these stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, I thought to myself, okay, so if these jars are meant for washing, why would Jesus use them for serving wine out of something that you're supposed to, to drink and it's supposed to be edible? Something seemed off here, Right. So really what we need to understand here is that a stone jar is an inferior container to store wine in. We, we talked about that. Wine was stored in clay pots, in wooden barrels, and in wineskins. Those are the common things. Nobody using conventional wisdom in those days would have willingly stored wine in stone jars. Yet Jesus goes ahead and performs his first miracle by doing exactly that. He reveals his glory using stone jars, which by people's understanding would have been a poor choice. People would have said that these stone jars are not suitable based on what they are. You can't put wine in them. It's not a good idea. But Jesus is saying, I will do what is unexpected and unaccepted so that I can reveal my glory to you. I am turning your understanding on its head so that you will see that I am different than anything you've ever experienced before. To me, these stone water jars remind me of Jesus' willingness to work in amazing ways through regular people like you and me. Too many Christians, we look at ourselves and we see a stone jar. We look at ourselves and say, I don't think that I'm suitable for God to do anything good. Or maybe we say, I just can't see that God would do anything valuable or important 
through me or in me. The crazy thing, friends, is that these, these stone jars, just like us, we were empty before Jesus came into this world and did something unexpected to reveal his glory. It was in these stone jars that a miracle, Jesus' first miracle, took place. Water was turned into wine by the power of God, not the power of the stone jar. And it is also in you and me that a miracle takes place. God shows his great love for us, purifying us and making us brand new and acceptable to him. He does this in us, sometimes despite how we view ourselves and if we're worthy for Jesus to do this in us or not. Before Jesus enters the scene, these were ordinary stone jars, unsuitable for anything besides what people had designated them for. Before Jesus came into our lives, we were ordinary people, maybe even written off by ourselves or someone else deemed unfit for any good thing. I'm so glad that Jesus sees what he's capable of in you and me, and he doesn't listen to what us or anybody else thinks about what we're worthy of. Friends, Jesus is good to us, and he is the good in us. And he's willing to do a good work in you and me, just like he did in those stone jars at that feast in Cana. He loves you. I just want you to know that. And you are just what he's looking for to do something special in because he longs to reveal his glory in you. Fourth thing, we got two more here, four, two more significant pieces. Just a, a question that I want to ask. It's more about these jars here. So did these jars have anything to do with the wedding celebration before Jesus showed up? It doesn't seem like it, right? This, this wedding celebration, it wasn't centered around Jewish ceremonial washing. There may have been a little piece of that, but it certainly wasn't centered around Jesus using them to do a miracle. So these, these stone jars were just off to the side. They weren't center stage at this point. But, but when Jesus showed up, what happened was that he filled them, right? And they became central to what was going on. It was by his power, his authority, and his will that they were filled, and they brought joy to the wedding guests. So not only is Jesus willing to do something in us, like we heard in our first point here, or our previous point, but we actually need to be filled by Jesus too. We can't just stand next to him and say, okay, Jesus, we're, we're close enough. I think maybe now something cool could happen. But no, what we need to do is we need to allow Jesus to enter our lives. We need to allow him to come in and fill us completely so that what he desires to see happen can happen. We have to give up the purposes that we have in life and accept this new purpose that Jesus has for us. In Matthew 16, verse 25, Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. When we hang on to our life, all we'll ever be is stone jars, empty inside, because either we feel unsuitable to have Jesus or we feel that we don't need Jesus. We base our life on how we see ourselves. But if we give up that identity that we have about ourselves and, and the life that that identity leads to, then we make room for Jesus. And he does something in us that no one, including ourselves, could ever see coming. So like that, that filling that Jesus wants to give is something very important that we need to invite him to do. Fifth and final piece of significance. The servants were likely a little concerned about what they were bringing to the master of ceremonies, right? Like they had just seen Jesus 
tell them to fill these stone jars with water. And then he says, okay, go and serve it to everybody. It's like, well, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, it's water we put in there, right? So just a moment ago, these stone jars were filled with water, and now they're being told to bring it out for a taste test to the master of ceremonies, the big kahuna, right? Many people throughout scripture, they've... They've been challenged to obey Jesus before they could see the end result of what he wanted to do in their lives. And these servants are no exception. Jesus asked them to fill it with water and says, okay, now I'm going to serve it. I don't know at what point the water turned into wine. I don't know if it's when they ladled it out into pitchers. I don't know if it's when the master of ceremonies brought it to his lips. I have no idea. All we know is that these servants had to be obedient Jesus wants to do something in your life and in my life that is better than what you and I would ever expect. You know, if I put water into a container and then I take some out, I'm expecting that it's going to be water. So you and I, we need to trust that Jesus is going to do something different than we could ever expect. Jesus could see the outcome of this wine, water to wine miracle long before the servants who were bringing the wine out to be tasted could see the outcome. These servants, they had to believe that Jesus knew better than they did. And when they started to obey without necessarily having a full understanding of the end result, that's when the miracle that Jesus did, turning water into wine, began to be experienced by everyone else at that wedding. Just put yourselves in the the shoes or the sandals of the people who were there, right? Probably word was getting around, people's cups were dry, thinking, okay, no more wine, what's going on here? And these servants, they get the inside track. They get to be right there next to Jesus when he's giving instructions to do something amazing. And I I wonder what it was like when people were tasting this amazing, the best wine of the night. And they're like, wow, this this is incredible. Like, I wonder if they got it mixed up. Were they supposed to serve this first? Uh, Or maybe like, wow, maybe these guys are way, way better off than we thought. Maybe this is just an amazing blessing. Imagine what it was like as people experienced the miracle of Jesus. Like, that's the kind of the way that God works in us. When we are like those stone jars and we say, yeah, Jesus, I don't have anything good that I can do. I'm not filled with anything. But if you come and you want to do something in me, that's the time when I believe that you can do something amazing in my life and through my life so that other people will get to see your glory. Remember, that's exactly what this miracle is all about. Jesus is revealing his glory to people. And he wants to do that in you and me. So we have to figure out, okay, how are we going to allow Jesus to do this? Oftentimes at the end of a message, we pray. Because when we learn a truth in scripture, it's not just good for us to say, okay, that's really cool or interesting or I believe that and that's fine. But what we need to do is then say, Jesus, this is your word. And what I just learned about is something that you want to do in my life. So now, Lord, I actually want to pray and I want to invite you to take this truth that I just read about and make this my experience. Okay? So that's what we need to do right now. We've heard what Jesus did. We heard what Jesus wants to do in our lives. So now we're going to pray about these things. And I'm going to pray over us. And if I pray about something that you agree with, or something that you desire for your own life, I would invite you to say amen. You don't even have to say it out loud if you don't want to. But just say amen or say yes 
or say, I agree, or in your own heart, just say, oh, Jesus, that's exactly what I want. I just haven't been able to put it into words. But what Jeff is saying right now, that's what I really, really need in me. Just go ahead and agree with me. Agree with the prayer. Agree with what Jesus is telling you in your heart. And then consider, consider that your way of inviting Jesus into the stone jar that we are and doing something that we could never imagine him doing without him. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an awesome miracle. What a great story. I love that it's not just a fable or a legend or some wives tale, but it's actually like truth that has been preserved by your Holy Spirit and by your power for for 2,000 years. So that today, here, in 2022, in Kandu, North Dakota, we can read about these things and not just marvel at the past, but then say, oh, Lord, this actually matters for my life today. Thank you, Jesus, that you would do that for us. So now, Jesus, I pray that people would, would, would be in agreement with me now as we pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you to surprise us by doing something in our lives that we would never expect, something we could never imagine, would never dream of asking for, Jesus, we invite you to do that in us. We can't even think about what it is right now, but all we know is that we want what you want to take place in our lives. Lord Jesus, we invite you to fill our hearts with your presence. Because in our hearts, that's where we make some really important decisions. Our heart is the seat of our emotions. It's the place where we love from. It's the place where we are passionate from or compassionate or merciful or faithful. Jesus, so please fill our hearts with your presence. Jesus, we also ask you to fill our minds with your presence. In our minds, we make decisions that we think are wise, that we want to be wise. But Jesus, our wisdom pales in comparison to the miraculous wisdom that you have for us. So please, Father God, fill our minds with your Holy Spirit. And I also pray that you would fill our bodies with your presence, Jesus. Jesus, come into our bodies and and cause us to have impulses where we physically are are engaged and compelled to go after you, to to pursue you in ways that we haven't before, where we physically say, i got to find my Bible and I want to read this thing. Or you move us to, to fold our hands and close our eyes when there's a situation and we need to pray. Or where we see someone else who needs to hear about Jesus and we walk over to them, not even realizing that what, it's what we're doing, but you are filling us so completely that our purposes are gone and now we're just living out your purposes. Jesus, we don't want to second guess you or your ideas. We, so we totally accept them, we receive them, we embrace them. We give up the purposes and goals that we have placed on our lives in this moment. And we come to you empty and we invite you to fill us with your purpose and your goals for us. Jesus, we absolutely want your glory to be revealed to this world. And we invite you to reveal your glory to all people through us. Amen.